Welcome to episode three of Behind the Stethoscope. Uh, I'm Gerald DeRosa. You guys may have heard me in episode one. Uh, I'm the head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital and part of the uh, four-person crew that started this podcast. I'm really excited today to be talking about um, burnout. And what we're going to focus on is a couple of individuals who have uh, had burnout at kind of early part of their career. Because I think in episode two, we talked about someone, a family physician who had had burnout at the kind of the end of their career. And so I'd like to welcome uh, Howie Lim, uh, who is an oncologist uh, from the BC Cancer Agency. Uh, we trained together years ago. Um, and uh, he's the program director of the oncology program at the present time. Um, and then uh, you guys know Ben Leung from our first podcast, uh, cardiologist at Royal Columbia Hospital in Eagle Ridge, who uh, we work together all the time on the wards and stuff. So uh, welcome, both of you. Thanks, Gerald. Thanks, Gerald. I'm also very happy uh, yeah. that I'm the youngest one in the trio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were trying to figure out where it goes. And uh, unfortunately, I'm the oldest in this, uh, in this situation. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was a, I guess what, how he was saying, I was a fourth year medical student when you were first, first year, year medical, medical student. student. Yeah, in the same mentor group. Uh, and, uh, and then Ben was a medical student when Howie was a senior resident uh, back That's in right. the day. That's yeah. right. I'm also very happy that uh, this is once again proof that Howie and I are not the same person. So um, <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. So um, for those of you listening, I'm sure some of you have a medical doppelganger where basically when you were training, they sometimes think that you were someone else. So Howie and myself, we were each other's doppelganger. Really? So yeah, yeah I yeah. had no idea. Oh my gosh. Oh. Tall, lanky Tall. Asian doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tall, lanky Asian doctor. And basically I would say 50% of the time they'd be like Dr. Lim and then it'd be Dr. DeRosa. Or, or maybe I was around more, so maybe you got Dr. DeRosa. I got a lot of Dr. DeRosa. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, the the I always tell people this story. I say that you know because when the residents go do oncology, I say, oh, you'll see my doppelganger then, and uh, and they usually come back and they say, oh yes, I can see that. But um, the craziest time was we were at uh, the attendings used to throw barbecues and we used to go there. Yeah. And Howie just happened to be standing next to my wife, and I was like somewhere else. <laughs> and one of the attendings came up to Howie and my wife and said, oh, how are the kids? And, uh, and I just went with it. Yeah, how I just I, ran with it. I was like, oh, they're fine. Oh, they're doing so well. They're doing so well. They're starting <laughs> kindergarten. Yeah. And then Gerald showed up. Because yeah. you don't embarrass the attending, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, I guess we can uh, roll into it now. And uh, what we thought we would do is maybe each person, each of you could kind of tell us a little bit about your story. You know, like the other two podcasts, when we've got the feedback, people have kind of identified... Um, themselves in these stories and that's what we're really trying to accomplish here so okay i don't know you want to start howie sure um so i'm a medical oncologist here at the bc cancer agency i've been practicing for 10 years so just my background so i went i did medical school at ubc then i did my internal medicine residency here and then i went did my medical oncology fellowship training here and then i went down to portland for a year uh to do gi medical oncology and came back was hired and around the time, just as I started on staff, I had just gotten married. Um, so I have to admit, probably the first two to three years of practice were, 
I think like anybody, we're pretty difficult. That transition point from going to, from a resident to a staff person where you have this responsibility. Um, and I think it's pretty daunting. Um, I guess some of the themes that I remember from my first couple of years that probably led to a lot of my struggles was I remember feeling a bit lonely, um, mainly because you have a cohort that you train with. And then your cohort actually ends up going to other places. And then you're kind of in the, and I was in the institution that I trained at, which is great. Your mentors are here, but it's, it's also hard now to think of your mentors as a peer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I didn't have someone necessary to go to, whereas, you know, if when you're training with your cohort, you're always in that resident fellows room and bouncing at things off of each other. Um, so I think, that was a bit of a struggle for me. And then also just transitioning to practice. I think back then, I think today there, there's far more resources for the residents in terms of learning how to transition to practice. Whereas you kind of just got thrown into it, um, learning how to do that longitudinal follow-up. And also all the business part of medicine was never really taught to us. I still think we don't do the greatest job, but I think we're much better at it. Um, but like. Do you incorporate? Like we had an option of being incorporated versus salary. And then all of a sudden I'm like, do I get life insurance? And and all of this other stuff that pertains to your life. Um, so trying to figure out all of that while practicing at the same time. And then at the same time in oncology, because I'm in an academic institution, trying to generate an academic career as well. So you're juggling kind of almost three large balls in the air. And I think my priorities began to blur a lot. Um, I think you, as you want to do the, just, we're all type A, so you want to do the best job possible. So I was staying late at night. I kind of perseverate over every lab work to make sure you mm. followed up on things. Um, and I think that's ultimately just where I didn't prioritize or give myself proper direction probably led to me spiraling. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. um, So to help myself out of it, I actually, uh, so so through the CMA, there are exactly- Or I guess let me just stop stop you there just because that's really interesting. And, and, uh, you know, we can talk about what you did after that. But, you know, we'll get Ben's story in a sec, but I I was going to say, you know, as the department head, some of the stuff you've described um, is actually quite common. Right. You know, when people come out into practice and you remove that attending that you reported to and you realize all the blood work is your blood work, all the decisions, are your decisions, every time you prescribe a drug, it's all on you as your responsibility. And uh, and people sometimes ask me, ask me, well, how often do you check your blood work? If you don't check it every day, you might miss something. Right. Yeah. But you can't check your blood work every night. Like, so what's a reasonable amount? But then no one actually tells you that. Right. And when you start out, you think you have to check it all the time, right? You want to make sure your decisions are good, you stay late, you kind of spend a lot more time sometimes with the patients initially, but then you start to get really tired trying to keep up with that. So. I think I fell into a lot of the imposter syndrome because, mm-hmm. I mean, I think all of us have an element of it, but I think those first couple of years probably um, was, I think, my worst part of it because I'm like, I just became staff. Do I really know what I'm supposed to be doing? And then um, you know, and some patients, they want a senior person seeing them. Yeah. So I yeah. remember getting fired a few times <laughs> for being 
nuanced staff mm-hmm. and, and you're trying not to take it personally and it happens to everybody. Um, well, I wore a tie on purpose, right? Like I yeah. wore a, a shirt and a tie and people are like, why are you wearing a tie? And I'm like, because if I don't wear a tie, I look like I'm 15 and they come yeah. in and they say, when's the real doctor coming? So I don't know if you guys, yeah. that, that's well, kind of the impression I got well, when I came in the door. Yeah, I used to dye my hair, but I stopped dyeing my hair so uh-huh. that my grays would show and people would recognize that <laughs> I was older. You guys don't have any gray hairs, but I have a lot more than you. So that's what I stopped doing. Well, I'm sure, yeah, the same thing happened the first two to three years. It's still yeah. like, oh, where's the staff person? Yeah. I'm like, that's me. Yeah. Did you find that stressful, Ben, when you opened your practice and like just making those medical decisions? Because I mean, you, yeah, out of the three of us, you probably make the biggest life and death decisions, right? I mean, you know, like uh, you, as a cardiologist, I would say. Yeah, maybe in a more acute setting. In an acute setting. In an acute yeah. setting yeah. in the hospital. Um, my story, actually, when I was listening to Howie's story for the first time, is a little bit similar, even mm-hmm. though I think my is a more community-based practice. So my story was, went to UBC Medical School, uh, did three years UBC Internal Medicine, and then went to McGill for cardiology. And I remember actually in the last few months when I was deciding whether I should pursue just working as a general cardiologist, which was really my goal from the get-go, or pursuing more a fellowship training and maybe an academic position. I remember my mentor told me, Ben, you should pursue your imaging fellowship because I bet you you'll be bored in two years after practicing in the community. Mm. And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. This is my dream. I can't wait to get out there and start practicing. So it was all exciting. And I think even for us as medical doctors, we all have a similar go-getter, overachieving personality. And for the last, I guess, 14 years of my post-high school academic life, it was crossing through hoops, which was really almost a bit of a high and a rush that you could kind of achieve certain goals that set for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so once I got out into practice, and then I told myself, my goal is to establish a, a, a busy community cardiology practice and be competent at it. And so that really got me going for the first couple of years. And then after a couple of years, I felt lost. I said, oh, now what? Like, what am I looking at to achieve? And, and I felt lonely, just like how he said. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised to hear you say lonely because you work in an academic setting. Whereas for me, I started off uh, in a 600 square foot uh, office space with one window and it was just myself and my MOA. Yeah. And it was just a grind almost like every day uh, seeing patients, you know, for eight hours a day without any interaction really with my colleagues on a daily basis. And so although my office day was short, it was the most tiring day as opposed to being at Royal Columbian, which was a longer day and more stressful day because you're running around, but I felt less tired and more energized. So mm-hmm. it was kind of it's kind of weird. So so I felt really lonely and isolated. And and I started thinking when I was a resident, even though we were working longer hours, I never felt burnt out. Mm-hmm. And it was because you had that cohort, like how we were saying, where you had residents, you can share your experiences with each other. And I didn't really have that. Right. So I, I felt a bit lost. And in turn, I think I became burnt out because I was just feeling impatient and feeling like isolated. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that's why I was like, I was happy, surprised to hear that you felt lonely as well because that's exactly how I felt the first few years in practice. Well, and you had no more hurdle mm-hmm. to, and I had no more hurdles, ascend, right? Like, yeah. And so I, I felt like uh, stagnant. Yeah. And and I, and I said, oh well, I guess this is my life for the next. 25 years it's just to work and go home and 
Yeah. Um, so um, it was actually, a, it kind of turned for me when I have a family doctor in the Port Coquitlam area and uh, who's really involved with Fraser Health. His name's Herbert Chang. And I remember the first time I met him, I was talking to him about this. And he said, oh, well, you have common doctor syndrome because you always want to overachieve. And so it's always important to set yourself goals every five years. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a medicine goal. It could be family goal or, right. or, or you know, extracurricular goals. So I think that's something that I've been trying to work on myself. Yeah. I, think, I think that's interesting about the loneliness because I, like, I, I think when I started, it was similar, right? Like you go from an academic center with residents and everyone, and then you're on either the inpatient service or in your office, and you don't really interact with anyone um, I think in my case, I naturally sought out other opportunities um, to not be isolated, right? So yeah. I actually continued doing CTU at VGH um, for like eight to 10 weeks. And that kind of gave me that kind of exposure to that community again. Yeah. And then and then I think getting residents also makes a difference, right? Because then you're not just kind of sitting there on your yeah. own for eight hours a day, just like making yeah. decisions, right? You have a resident there, you can kind of chat with them. Yeah. You maybe have a bit of lunch. Uh, they ask you questions that you have to then, you know, answer, it kind of drives you to keep up to date and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, I think it's a, it's a good thing for, for, for us. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can, <laughs> so it sounds like you guys had fairly similar experiences. Um, and then, you know, Perhaps we can talk about how you went about, you know, addressing those concerns. I guess one of my questions is how do you recognize it? Like, because, you know, like when I told people when I was burnt out, I often tell people it was my wife who actually recognized it. I didn't recognize it at all. Right? right. So like, did you have the insight to recognize that? Or was it other people who kind of said to you guys, uh, hey, like you're, you don't seem really happy or anything like that? I think it was a bit of both for me. Um, definitely my wife <laughs> told me the same thing. I could feel it as well. Um, it's interesting. There were days I was like, I was like thinking, okay, I want to grind it out for the next twenty-five years, and I was just kind of counting down days already mm. at that point. Yeah, <laughs> which you're like, mm, that's not healthy. Um, <coughs> and sometimes I would just come home and just technically unload a lot of bad baggage mm. with my wife. So my, my wife was really good about it. So we implemented something where. I could say one negative thing about the day, one interesting thing, and end off on a positive. Oh, yeah. So it forced you to start thinking. And then it did make me realize there are actually a lot of positives to our day. We just focus a bit on the negatives. But and then I also noticed I was getting a bit short, like just, um, you know, either short with patients or short with other people. And, and I was like, that's not who I am. Yeah, that's not your nature yeah. in a general sense. So. Yeah. So I think so it was a bit of both. But you're right. It, it helps to have your partner be a, a reflective piece for, for you too. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you brought up like one of the things you guys did between the two of you was this kind of cognitive reframing, right? Which is one of the strategies is just to kind of, you know, when you get into the spiral, sometimes everything seems ne negative, right? And you can keep on creating that downward spiral. And sometimes it's just kind of changing your mindset a little bit can be effective. So... And Ben, how did you recognize? Uh, pretty similar to Howie. Um, probably being impatient and short was the first sign mm -hmm. uh, with patients and with staff or, or hospital uh, staff. Um, also feeling like I couldn't listen anymore, mm. um, especially at the end of an office day. Uh, I reached a point where 
I yeah. couldn't listen. I couldn't hear. Uh, just nothing was registering. Oh, like, really? Like yeah. It, just... it was. Yeah. It was. My mind was just really tired, and so. Um, and also, I felt like I was just very negative, yeah. and my now wife, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time, would recognize that, and uh, yeah, she would tell me, and so yeah. Did you feel like you cared less about the patients, about the? Because that's what they say sometimes. You just stop caring, you know. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, you yeah, get depersonalized, you, right? Like you totally when they tell yeah. you something that you should be sensitive to, or or you know, you just kind of it doesn't affect you as much as it did when you were, you know keen in your job, excited to be there. That's yeah. And then we all encounter also difficult patients and mm-hmm. families and you just become very jaded right? and you tell them, well, I don't care and in your mind, right? Yeah. You say, there's um, nothing I can do. Nothing really, I can know, do. Well, yeah. okay, if you want a second opinion, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those kind of thoughts. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not who I am. Yeah. And that's not what I want to be like for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really said something needs to change. What did you do then? How did you change it around? Um, I think I'm very time conscious, especially when I'm at work. So even in the office, if I'm running late with a patient, I feel stressed that I need to rush and and get on to the next patient. So I've actually just structured my day a bit better to give me more freedom. So I would always give myself a break uh, in the morning so that if I was running late, I wouldn't feel stressed that I have to catch up. And then I know at what time in the afternoon I felt that maybe I wasn't giving my best work mm-hmm. and I would cut myself off mm-hmm. a bit earlier that way. Yeah. 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 So, and other things outside of work helped. Um, I think having a family helps. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a new dad, so that definitely helps mm-hmm. refocus you. And uh, I think for me, Exercise is important, I think, for all of us. Yeah. So just uh, ma- really making a, a point of uh, exercising after work to de-stress and and relax a bit more. So you've yeah. touched upon two important things. You know, when I've been reading about burnout and how to deal with it, right? Um, one of the things that people say is, you know, take control over your schedule, right? Mm. And you know, some people that I've talked to in the past. They just feel like they have to be there eight and go to five, right? Yeah. And they have to see people, you know, every half an hour and whatever, right? Um, but you don't really have to do that, right? Right. Like I, I think what you've said is, you know, how much energy do I have in a day to give, right? And how fast do I like to work? And I often tell people, like, you actually have to think about that, right? You have to actively think about that. Like some people, it takes them an hour to do a consult. Some yeah. people, they can do it in 30 minutes, right? So, right. Um, and I think we're lucky that we're in a profession that we do have control yeah. over our schedule. I mean, not many careers out there, you're really your own boss and you can control that schedule. I do find, though, when you're in community practice and you're on a fee-based kind of payment right. program, when you are used to making a certain income, you always naturally, instinctively would want to maintain that income. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you overwork yourself and become burnt out because you're trying to maintain that certain level. And, um, you know, I'm lucky that I have a good partner in my office who is very grounded, Mm -hmm. uh, who's very balanced, you know, uh, Vineet. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So he's definitely been a good influence for me. Yeah. 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 He'll be happy I gave him a shout out. 
<laughs> no, but you're right. You know, sometimes when people, you know, you, you talk to people and they say, I'm, oh, I'm on call too much. I'm, you know, yeah. I got too many weekends. I got, you know, this and that. And sometimes yeah. the response is, well, you know, why don't you give some up? Right. Yeah. Why don't you go down to 0.8? Right. Yeah. I've, I've talked to people about that before in whatever capacity. Right. Yeah. And sometimes you do get that statement. Well, but then I'm going to make less money. Yeah. Right? And it's, well, yeah. Yes, you are, right? You know, you can't have both ways. And it's a tough mindset switch. It's very hard. It's very hard uh, for anybody. Um, But it it, it does help. Yeah. It does help. Yeah. You're definitely a lot happier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need always jokes with me. This is, if it wasn't for me, you may be making more money, but you'd be less happier. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Well, I mean, we, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not telling you secrets, but as, an, as a nephrology group, many years ago, we only had seven people and we were working really hard, right? Like, um, we were sometimes driving back and forth to do rounds at night to two different sites, you know, probably like six call nights. And at that time, we would go in and do the lines for all the ICUs. So even if they were started on any type of dialysis. So, um, and, uh, and we brought in more people and, you know, there's always that concern that, you know, the workload's going to go down, your income's going to go down. But uh, boy, the, the trade-off for the lifestyle, I think, like none oh, of yeah. us would go back, right? Oh, you know, yeah. We have like 16, 17 people and it's, uh, it's way more manageable, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think if I had kept on that pace, I might have been in trouble down the road, right? So um, it's and a if, tough. And if you to discuss with some people that say they want to work a certain pace so that they have financial freedom or that they could retire early, the, the realistic thing is most doctors don't retire early. Right. You know, we love what we do um, and you want to work till as long as you, you possibly can. So why burn yourself out, especially early on in the career? Yeah. You know, just pace yourself. Before we ask Howie, because it sounds like Howie actually did something more formal, when, you know, like you kind of just tried to figure it out and yeah. change things around, talk to some people. Um, one of the things that I, I've always wondered is like, um, because they always say if you get up in the morning and you're excited about going to work or you're happy to go to work, then that, that means you're happy, right? So like, did you ever wake up, and, like either of you, and be like, oh my God, I got to go to work today? Yeah, actually, I think during those first couple of years, I was yeah. like, oh man, I'm... Like just not looking forward to Not looking forward to, to coming into the office. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, it was also telltale. Yeah. Like, you know, I've trained all my life to be an oncologist. Yeah. And then you're working in Vancouver, working you've got in Vancouver, an academic exactly. position, you got like everything you really yeah. actually wanted to achieve. Yeah. And from my standpoint, like here we're salaried, so mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about billing. You know, we get six, six weeks paid vacation, I have a pension. Like it, it's really a dream yeah. pack. Even setting up your office, you didn't. Yeah, I didn't have, have to set yeah. up an office. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're making us angry, Ben and so, I. Yeah. No, geez. <laughs> I should have been an oncologist. <laughs> um, you know, but I think it's also. Uh, I think part of it at the beginning, I saw way more patience to prove myself more. Prove it, I think, to make sure I was proving... You're the young guy. You yeah. You have to keep up. Keep you have up. to pull your weight, right? Exactly. And you know what? Um, it helped. So Peter Sang's one of the senior hematologists um, who I uh, happen to know as well. And he was like, you know, your career is a marathon. It's not a race. Mm-hmm. So you got to slow down because you cannot keep that pace. Um, so it is coming back to the pace. Um, and like for me to see more patients, I wasn't earning more money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so even my wife's like, what are you doing to yourself? Uh, I was like, well, 
you know, I want to make sure I'm giving proper care and I want to make sure I'm pulling my own weight. I don't want anyone to think I'm lazy. Right. And there's a waiting list. There's a wait, yeah, and you see the yeah. wait list. So I'm yeah. like, okay, I'm going to be the person to see like five extra consults this week. Wow. Get that wait list down, right? Right. And then your clinics are just like a gong show. Right. But I'm like, you know, I got to suck it up to be part of Like, I want to be a team player. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Can I ask a question? The need to prove yourself that you said, does that come internally or was that something external? I think that was internal. There was, yeah. I, I have, there was nobody on, yeah, no boss or anybody saying, Putting pressure in. Put it on, like, you need to see more patients, right? Um, but I think it's when you come on a staff, you want to prove, you know, I'm, I'm here to help out the team. Yeah. I think we all have that innately yeah. that we want to prove ourselves, right? We do, yeah. yeah. But that's almost the worst thing to do when you're yeah. starting and you're yeah. slower and you're less experienced to try and do yeah. higher more. volume. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good lesson for those of us who, who you know, like... When new people come on, I think a lot of us have taken mentorship roles, you know, on those new people. And that's that's one of the things that we should be telling them or anyone who's listening, who's starting out, you should say, just take it easy, right? Like okay. I told the new addition to our office, like book an hour and 15 minute consult if that's yeah. what you think it takes, right? Yeah. Book a half hour follow up. <clears throat> like eventually you'll get faster, you'll cut it down. But like if you have a break, then you get your dictations done, you check your labs, you're not going home at 8 p.m. Yeah. at night, right? Like eventually you'll get, you know, you get faster. Yeah, you'll get faster. You'll be able to book faster. Your wing will get longer. You'll have to see, you know, you'll have to get more efficient. But, you know, if you if you start off that way, I could really see how it just derails, yeah. right? You've got much more blood work to follow up. You've got you know, more follow-ups to yeah. book in with the new consults. And it just spirals and it goes down and down and but down. But you can yeah. see as a junior person, you see a senior person doing that. You right. don't realize yeah. the, you have the experience to see a consult like in half an hour, which would take a junior person an hour. Yeah. Like you... So you're like, well, if they, they're, they're going at that pace, I should be going that pace to help out. Like, I just got hired. I don't want right. to see. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it, we're yeah. all overachievers. Like, I want to be as exactly. good as everybody else. Oh, yeah, we're all classic <laughs> overachievers. I think it's hard to be aware of what your comfortable pace you're at because mm-hmm. when you go through residency and fellowship, you're just following a pace that's been set for you. Yeah. You never know, oh, would I be comfortable working at this pace? Right. So when you're a new staff and you want to prove yourself, you just take everything on. Yeah. And then that's how you get burnt out in early careers is you just overwork. Yeah. But you don't know what you're comfortable with from the get-go. So. The other yeah. thing is, and you know, certainly uh, being involved in a big group, right? you realize people have a different intrinsic pace, right? Yes. And if you just value speed, right? Like who can see the most patients? Like that's not that's not necessarily what you should value, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately you're valuing quality, right? Yeah. But, uh, but you know, some people just read faster, right? They think faster. They, yeah. you know, like that back in the day in med school, right? Some people studied and they only need to study for a couple hours. Some people need to study for, you know, eight hours, right? Like, yeah. That's just the way it goes. So I sometimes, um, you know, I sometimes tell people like you just have to really spend time knowing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like do what you guys have talked about, like examining yourself and saying like, and maybe, you know, not using external validate, like comparing yourself to someone else, right? Just saying, I mean, there are obviously limits. You don't want to see two patients a day, but, you know, like they'll just be, that's the reality. There'll be faster people and there'll be slower people. Yeah. So how we what um, then? What did you do? You you were yeah. talking a little bit about you know you engaged the doctors of BC or the yeah, yeah through the CMA you can actually get an executive coach 
Um, so you do pay for it out of pocket. And mm. You don't have to go in person. It was by phone, and it's with a coach who helps you work through a lot of these, um, I guess, issues. Um, and it helped me reframe things, reprioritize. But it was it probably what helps the most is it helps you figure out your value system so that you can do your own internal validation versus seeking external validation. A lot of it also helped me realize what I can say no to. Mm. Why do I want to say no to something? Um, a lot of it came back to like, the reason why I'm saying no is because I'm not going to be able to do a good job. And if I don't do a good job on something, I'm going to feel crappy mm -hmm. uh, if I don't finish the task. Um, the other thing that was really helpful was just helping me figure out my priorities. So one of the things was, one of the exercises, for example, is like, write your own retirement speech. What do you want to be known for when you oh. retire? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's um, interesting. Because you, you've probably gone to some of the, you know, the older school docs where they're like, they're great at the hospital and you hear their kids. Yeah, we realize he's a great physician, but we never saw him. And uh, that was how it was back in the day a bit. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be known as a good husband, a good father, and then a good physician. And then I actually, for me, it wasn't so much physician, a good mentor. That's what came out of it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I really enjoyed mentoring people. And actually, at, when, by the time I was in my second or third year, I was mentoring a few more people. And I read that helped energize me. And I think it's because I went through this process. I didn't want other people to go through it as well. Um, and I didn't want them to feel lonely as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that helped me figure out what I found, what tasks I found value in, in addition to clinical work. It probably helped me solidify why I want to be the residency program director was, you know, that's the ultimate opportunity to mentor mm -hmm. a whole bunch of residents. And also change probably how we train residents. So back then we already started to incorporate transition to practice before the postgrad office started it. Um, started to think about more resident wellness, um, really start to incorporate a lot of those extrinsic things outside of the medical expert into the curriculum. Um, so to really help prepare residents to be like practicing physicians, but a well-rounded person. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, I think that's, I think, yeah, actually that's a really good point about being human first, being human being first, and then physician, obviously a good physician after. So the things you touched on with uh, wanting to be known as a good father and husband, I think those obviously happy home kind of brings forth yeah, a, yeah. a good happy physician as well too. So I think those are important. So don't forget your personal life for sure. I think the other part of it was it helped me let go. Maybe arrogance is a bit of a strong word, but the arrogance that I, only I could take care of this patient. Um, you know, I have 26 colleagues, so if I'm away, someone can cover, because when they're away, I cover. Um, because at the end of the day, we are all replaceable. Yeah. So if I got hit by a bus, someone can replace me. But if, but in my home life, I'm not replaceable. So yep. it made me realize I need to take some of, cut back that energy at work so I can take stuff at home and be a husband and a father. Yeah. Um, not come home, go blah, and just sit on the couch. Yeah. So there are days, some days, I've got a few dictations left. I just leave it to the next day. I'm like, I couldn't go home, be with my family. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you can do it the next day and, and yeah. the work sometimes can wait. I mean, yeah. you take care of the urgent stuff, don't get me wrong. 
But um, once I came around to that, that actually helped a lot too. Um, and then now I don't check emails on vacation. Um, I really protect my private time mm-hmm. much better. Yeah, humbling yourself is important. And actually, my brother-in-law told me, I remember this very fondly, was when I had my um, daughter a few months ago, he told me, you know, remember Ben, you're easily replaceable as a cardiologist, but no one can replace you as a father. So that always stuck with me. Yeah. Just exactly what you said. So, yeah. I still think I'm irreplaceable. (laughs) 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 My wife tells me I'm not. Um, So. All hail King (laughs) (laughs) Darussian. No, but it's true though. Joking aside, like I I do, I I, I fall victim to the same thing, right? Oh, if I don't do this, then what's going to happen, right? Who's going to do this? Or, you know, and then I'm checking my emails, like you say, during holidays and all that sort of stuff. I'm texting people. I'm like, oh, did they make sure to check? so-and-so's potassium did they do that and, and and you're like well geez like it can't be that way because you're right like if you disappeared obviously people would you know if any of us disappeared people would be sad and people would be like <clears throat> there'd be a learning curve for someone but someone's gonna step into the role right life and goes on life goes life on, goes on. Yeah. you know i was having dinner with uh because this goes to how you like how you want to be remembered i was having dinner with some of the guys i did residency with um gary pensgrove who you know and Dave Collins and Sean Branny. So I'll give them a shout out, my residency class. Oh, I saw that on uh, Oh yeah, on my Instagram, yeah, yeah. So we went out. Get a big and, bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I saw. Yeah. That's how Gerald's doing burnout. <laughs> yeah, that's how we deal with it. Um, so uh, it was actually 20 years from when we started residency. So that was kind of cool. Wow. Yeah. So we went out for a nice wow. dinner and we're chatting about the good old days. Um, and uh, and they said the same, you know, we're at that age where you start thinking about, okay, you know, you're 15 years into your practice, right? And you're thinking, okay, I've got 10 to 15 or 15 years left, right? You're kind of like halfway through your practice and you're looking and saying, okay, well, you know, you start to see the people that are retiring, right? And say, that will eventually be me, right? Like when you start in the first three to five years, you don't even think about that really that much. But, um, and, uh, and we were saying, yeah, like, you know, it's funny, like once people retire, they get forgotten really quickly, you know, like you, you'll, you'll talk to a, like when new staff people come and you, you mention a cardiologist that just retired five, six years ago, they won't even know who they are. Right. And, and you're like, wow, like they were here for 30 to 40 years and eventually like some of their colleagues remember them, but like, you know, that's pretty much it. And it just puts it in perspective. You know, what you're saying is like, what do you want to be remembered by? Or remembered for right and so um so i think it you know all of us were talking about yeah family kids friends stuff like that i mean uh, you know not everyone has a not everyone has a family i think when people have families they kind of say okay that's where they put their parties a lot of them but you know um you know i think other people would hobbies friends you know other things outside of medicine you know i think that's an important thing to identify that you've got to put some time into that, right? Or else yeah. you're just doing the work all the time. Yeah. I think one thing we talked about, I think we were talking a little bit before this podcast, um, and we were saying, you know, in medicine, you have to sacrifice a certain amount of personal time to become a good doctor, right? I mean, it's just study and see patients and be on call and all that sort of stuff. And inevitably, uh, you have to 
you know, pull away from your social commitments, your friends, your hobbies, you know, you try and maintain some of them. Um, and then you, and then you finish residency and you start your practice and then, you know, you've got to kind of reestablish those sort of things. I think sometimes people have problems, have problems like resetting that, right. They're not used to doing them anymore. So. But once you start practice, your schedule certainly allows you to become more flexible. So yeah, I remember actually in residency, I always wanted to do dragon boat. But they always right. practiced Wednesday mornings and Saturday <laughs> mornings. And, you know, when you're in internal medicine, you play on call every three, four nights. So yeah. it'd be very hard to have it structured out extracurricular activities. But now that, you know, you're more in control of your schedule, then it's a lot easier. Yeah. And Ben, you just recently had, because you've been practicing for how long now? Uh, it's my eighth year. Actually. Eighth year, yeah. right. And you just recently had your daughter. Right? Yes. So like... Before that, like when you rejig things and stuff like that, well, I guess you had your partner that you, yeah. that you valued, but did you pick up a hot, like, did you go back to doing a hobby? I thought, I remember you saying something about music, right? Uh, well, I was no, like was dabbling in music. Yeah. I mean, I tried to pick up drums uh, that didn't go very well. <laughs> Not as coordinated as I thought it was with my legs and uh, my feet and my hands. Uh, and so I more, my hobbies are more activities and, and uh, like tennis, mm-hmm. play tennis regularly. Um, into running and then just going to the gym. Um, and I guess I picked up podcast as a hobby right. uh, a couple of years ago that I do in, in my home for fun. Um, and so that was kind of an outlet for me to talk about ex- everyday, everyday life. And so I enjoyed that. And um, yeah, so those were my hobbies really. Yeah. And I mean, we share a, a passion for NBA basketball. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I would consider that a hobby of mine as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, like, when I tell people, I, there was probably one hobby I was able to maintain was playing basketball and it was one night a week. Right. And I really tried to make that night. Um, certainly as a resident, you can do it all the time because your, your call schedule is not under your control, but as a staff person, you know, I, I just asked the, originally it was Mahmood who did the scheduling and I just asked him if possible, can I, can you not put me on Wednesdays? Um, or I'd trade them away or, you know, take mm-hmm. a Friday for a Wednesday, <laughs> you know, and people always trade a Friday for a Wednesday. So, um, but, um, you know, I, I, I kind of told myself, like, I'm not going to miss this, right? Regardless yeah. of anything, like, I'm just not missing this. I won't do a meeting on Wednesday. I mean, that's still the rule. I don't do meetings on Wednesdays. I don't, you know, that's my day. Is it because your basketball team would lose if you didn't play? Or? <laughs> is that so awesome? They're like, we need a Wednesday meeting for Gerald. <laughs> it's no, playoff no. time. It was just it was just because you have to like you have to be so like how he says you have to say no then. You know, you have to kind of carve out that time, right? And but I also think like Wednesday ended up being a good one because it's kind of midweek, right? Yeah. Because I, I found like it was something that you could look forward to, right? And you could say, Okay, I'm gonna go out there, blow off some steam see the guys, yeah. you know, play some basketball, have a good time. Yeah. And it just was always that thing that got me out of the hospital and kind of grounded you back like midweek. So, yeah. Actually, I have a question. You know, some people think that if you're burnt out, you should take more holidays. Mm-hmm. Did you ever felt that holidays actually helped with burnout? Because for me personally, I don't find it helpful at all. Because you find that you go, say, for two weeks, you come back and there's more, there's more, work, there's more work. And then after a couple of days, you're back to where you yeah. were before. Yeah. So I, I didn't necessarily think taking more vacation would help with burnout. I don't know if- I have an opinion, but what, what do you think? Else? I think it depends on how you take your vacation. Yeah. So I agree, like leading up to a vacation, 
there's a whole pile of work you got to do to accommodate your vacation and you come back, there's a whole pile of work afterwards. And I, I think that's just the natural, how things work for us. Right. Um, so for me, I found early on when I was checking emails and stuff on vacation, that led to my burnout because I wasn't really taking vacation. Yeah. So what actually helped was one time my wife and I, we went on a Mediterranean cruise. So when you're on a cruise ship, yeah. there was no signal. I wasn't going to pay $1,000 for internet <laughs> <laughs> to check work yeah. email. Yeah. It was awesome. Like no one could get a hold of me. Yeah. And when I came back, yeah, there was a lot of stuff to go through. Yeah. But you know, it was a good exercise because I thought, oh, my patients will all die without me. The world was going to end. Everything was fine. Yeah. There was a heap word. So, but I felt more relaxed coming mm. back to work. Right. Because I managed to disconnect. Right. I think if you're, I think if you're truly like very clinically burnt out, um, sometimes an extended break might help reset that. Right. You know, that I think you almost need like two or three months to just step away. A sabbatical. Yeah, a sabbatical yeah. and, and yeah. figure out if that's, I think, for the people who've truly lost mm. who they are. Yeah. And I don't think I was in that, that place. I think I was just on the cliff sort of thing, I guess. Um, so that's so that's why my vacation, like my wife actually makes me plan out the year of vacation ahead of time. So I plan out four weeks of vacation throughout the year so okay. I know where it is. Because I think it's also very easy to fall in the trap where take a vacation but don't plan the next one yeah and then you go like six months like oh i haven't taken vacation yeah so yeah. this way it's always planned out every year i found a short uh like longer extended weekends helpful yeah so okay. tacking on a friday, friday. off mm. until monday so you have a four-day weekend yeah and doing yeah. those every two three months i found that a bit helpful yeah yeah more frequent shorter vacations I think it's a very interesting question though, right? Because, you know, I think sometimes that's like, whether it be resident or staff person or, or things like that, I think everyone kind of jumps to that solution, right? Just do less, right? Like take more days off and you'll be fine, right? But I think it really depends on what the cause of the burnout is, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Like, like that may help some people, but I think sometimes people just assume that's going to help. But you just, if you're unhappy with your actual work environment or like what's going on or you know, or, or what you're doing, right? Just taking another day off, you know, maybe, you know, puts it off for another day, but like, you'll go right back into that cycle again. Right. And so I think, you know, you have to kind of look at that and say, you know, what's actually causing it? Maybe some time off to rejig, but like how he says, a day here or there is not going to do that then. You almost yeah. have to like really take some time off and really refocus and reevaluate, right? Right. You know, like when I talked in, in our first podcast about, well, I burnt out. It had nothing to do with workload. You know, um, I don't think taking days off would have helped, right? I just, I didn't see my path. I didn't, you know, I didn't have an end goal there. I was worried about getting a job, supporting my family. You know, like taking a few days off is not going to mm -hmm. help that. I needed to kind of clarify, mm -hmm. you know, where I was going, you know, and what I was putting my energy into. Once I, you know, once I know what I'm, what I'm going to put my energy into, I have no problem putting the energy in. Right? right. It's just if it's going nowhere, then that's I think for some people where they really get lost. Yeah. So. And I have to say, Gerald, you probably are one of the few people I've met that have extreme energy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like abundance of energy. You're like nonstop. This is where it's the capacity part. I, yeah. I may look like Gerald, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not Gerald. <laughs> yeah. It, it, 
it's kind of funny like and, and it is important like I, I do tell people that like some people are higher energy people and some people are, are like low energy people right some people are multitaskers and they're they're good at doing that and some people really like to focus on one thing at a time right and um, and there's no right way of doing things um, but you have to realize that about yourself because then you know this saying no becomes a problem because I I think all of us you know want to be liked we're type a we're used to doing things so when someone asks you to do something naturally you kind of go okay I'll do it right can you sit on this committee can you see this extra patient can you help me out can you do that oh there's a resident here can you teach this can you do this session over here right and um, and I think some people do take on so many things and then it hits ahead and then they just you know lose it so you do have to kind of think about it um, but you know, it, it's all it's all sacrifices too. Like taking on extra things mean you have to give something up, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that people need to realize that. And um, I don't sacrifice, like I would say, I don't sacrifice my family time, right? I still try and spend uh, a lot of time with my family. You know, I, 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 the other rule I made when I had kids was I, I'm never going to miss any other basketball games, and I've managed to do that for the past four years. Uh, okay. Sometimes it's Herculean effort to do that. Um, but, you know, uh, one example I tell people is, I, you know, I haven't read a book in a decade. Yeah, because mm. I, I don't really have the time. I used to like to read a lot. Mm. Um, but, you know, to sit down and read a novel takes time. Mm. And, uh, you know, with the kids and the work and the other responsibilities, that's kind of the sacrifice I've decided to make mm. is, uh, is not, you know, to do that. And that's okay, but yeah. you just, you know, you can't have it all, right? Yeah. So. I think that's actually a good point is you can't have it all. Um, if you want to have really a, a very thriving, I guess, public academic career, there is going to have to, like you said, there is something that has to be sacrificed. Um, and if you want to have that balance, then you, like, and it depends on your capacity as well. And there are people who have that energy and capacity who can have maybe a really good family life and a really great career. But I think for the most part, um, I think it's incredibly difficult to have it all. And I have to admit, once I realized that and, and you figure out what your priority is, then I felt a lot better about what I do. Yeah, or your career can have one or two facets. Like exactly, you can't, do, yeah. you can't do everything. You can't do all four. Th- yeah, all yeah. four or five. You, you can't, can't be, be a researcher teacher, plus a clinician plus a teacher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think uh, I was just thinking the, the the word or that probably summarizes everything we've talked about is having self awareness. Mm-hmm. Having self awareness of recognizing burnout and knowing what your capacity is, what your pace is, what you want to achieve ultimately. I think just being self-aware is the most important thing of preventing or dealing with burnout. And I think also then having a good support group and mentorship mm-hmm. is also yeah. really helpful. Um, you know, around the time when I was struggling with all of this, I had a lot of good friends to talk to. Um, so, not, I mean, a mutual friend of ours is Simon, mm-hmm. who's a community yonk in Burnaby. And I was like, I should just go community. And he's like, no way, <laughs> you're, you're academic and you should stay that way. You need to just, you know, figure some things out. Um, but it's good to have people you can bounce things off of. And his wife, Lisa, has also been a good friend. She said the same thing. And, you know, Paul Jensen's another hematologist too. Actually, we play hockey together. So now what I do is we play hockey Friday nights and 
actually the car ride to hockey is really us just talking all about work and complaining about everything and getting it out of our system <laughs> <laughs> so that when we come home we're fine um so that works out too yeah so. you can't underestimate the value of venting Honestly, like, because I think that's what you lose, you know, when you're a resident or medical student, right? Like there's a lot of venting going on, right? And uh, a lot of, um, and I think that's cathartic. And, uh, and then you're right, you get into your practice and you can't really vent to your colleagues, right? (laughs) Like as much until you get to know them better and, you know, and, and even then. So, um, it's, it is a different dynamic once you get onto practice, I would say. Uh, On our wedding day. Uh, my friends would actually go to my wife and say, thank you for being Ben's counselor for the rest of his life. <laughs> so they don't have to do it? So they don't have to do it. Oh, yeah. Like, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, it's very, definitely important for the support system. If we were to go back now, right, and say, okay, some people listening are starting out this journey, right? Like starting out either going to practice or maybe they're residents or medical students who are listening who are trying to give advice, like... Um, so, so what would we, what would we say? I mean, I, I think you're right. The training programs are getting a little bit better at this and they're integrating things like transition to practice and um, wellness, but like no program's perfect, right? And it's only a slice of the time. Um, and so, yeah, what would each of you say to the... I think it's, you have to think of the long game. So your career is gonna be 25 years-ish So the money-wise, actually, I told the residents this one time, like, over your career, you're probably going to earn 8 to $10 million. And they're like, what? So I'm like, (laughs) so you don't have to start off the gate super fast um, and block out some time to allow you to catch up. Because I think one of the common mistakes people do is they, like, you book almost five days Mm -hmm. of all clinic and don't put anything for the paperwork. (laughs) Um so that it is truly, it's a marathon, you just gotta start slow and slowly build and maintain a support network of your friends and peers um, and and talk with each other. Um, And also in the end, you need to find a a good mentor who can help guide you through this as well. I echo exactly what Howie said, just you seek out mentors, Mm -hmm. uh, pace yourself, be self-aware and recognize that you are replaceable and you should always be a human being first. Yeah, yeah. I think that's good advice. I mean, you know, when people come out, they often have a line of credit, right? And a fair amount of debt. And one of the things I always hear from them is, oh yeah, I need to wipe this out, um, get rid of it. And I sometimes tell them, don't do that, right? Yeah. Just It'll get wiped out eventually, yeah. right? But if you want to try and do that in the first year, you're going to do many things that are exactly the opposite of preserving your your sense of self, right? Yeah. So I think that's good advice. Take it slow, right? Yeah. The marathon is what we'll tell. It's yeah. Excellent. And I, I like this idea of mentorship. You know, I've been toying around with, um, you know, what we do as a department and stuff like that. Um, and you know, there's good research that indicates if people just get together in, in small groups periodically through the year, their you know their satisfaction and their wellness improves mm-hmm. by just meetings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wonder if you, you can like maybe we can attach a mentor to each new staff person, right? Yeah, we don't do that right now. Um, it could be something that we could explore. Um, well, actually, you know, even at Royal Columbian Hospital, we we have a doctor's lounge, but I've never been to the doctor's lounge. And I feel like a doctor's lounge is 
a really good place to connect with yep. other specialists and to vent. Yeah. And we had that as residents, but yep. as staff, I don't know how often you go to the doctor's lounge. No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting, Ben, that you brought this up. Yeah. Um, in the doctor's lounge at RCH is not really in kind of a really greatly accessible area, nor is it located near the cafeteria. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because I work at Surrey as well. And in Surrey, the doctor's lounge is right off the cafeteria. Yeah. And so what uh, people do is they go grab their lunch and there's a, there's a TV in there and stuff like that. And uh, unless things have changed, I don't go to Surrey as often anymore. Um, but, uh, but you grab your food, you go into the doctor's lounge and generally you run into some people and, uh, and you chat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you see, you know, you run into people that you haven't seen for a while and things like that, or people you trained with and you have a good chat. Yeah. And, uh, in the, in the new build at Vancouver General Hospital, cause I'm on some of these wellness, um, groups, um, one of the biggest things is that they, uh, they are unveiling their new physician lounge oh, okay. um, as, as a real kind of landmark structure to try and promote physician wellness. Mm. Um, and that's how they actually got funding for it and stuff. Okay. So I think some of us are going to look at it, but I think it's a good point. We're trying to uh, definitely um, raise that as importance in our RCH redevelopment is that it would be nice to have a lounge where people could actually want to gather and, uh, and keep those, those contacts because I think the other problem is, as the hospital gets bigger, you know, um, like you add another tower, another tower, mm -hmm. you just split people yep. away even more. I mean, I guess you guys have a single <laughs> building, so maybe it's easier, or do you guys have a... I mean, it's easier for us because we're a single building, but we still have these relationships with like VGH mm -hmm. or St. Paul's. I mean, I have patients at VGH and walk over. Um, but you're right, like, I don't know some of the new CTU staff. Um, so... The reason why I do walk over to VGH to see my patients is to get to know some of the staff people. Because it's it's nice to put a face to a name. Yeah. And it's coming back to being human. When you see the human, you start <laughs> being humans together. Yeah, so. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's great advice. Okay, so um, I guess it's time to wrap up now. Uh, I really want to thank uh, Howie Lim, um, oncologist at the Cancer Agency, for uh, joining us today. We're actually in the Cancer Agency, so he also provided the space for us to uh, record. And thanks, Ben, uh, for joining me because uh, I was a little bit nervous uh, hosting my first time, and Ben's done this many times before. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to Rob Maloney of Parkland Music, our producer, engineer, this podcast, just to remind people, is made possible from our local facilities engagement via the Doctors of BC. Um, and of course, thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Um, we invite you to connect with us on Instagram. At, and also, we have an email address, behindthestethoscope at yahoo.com. Um, please, if you have any comments uh, or you'd like to rate this show, uh, please feel free to do so. And... Uh, Please subscribe to our podcast um, on whatever your favorite platform is. Um, and I hope all of you have uh, enjoyed listening to us as much as we have enjoyed uh, making this podcast for you today. Thanks awesome. for listening. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Alex.